Real Men Feel with Andy Grant encourages men to allow and express all of their emotions. Despite what you may have been told, all emotions do serve you. Real Men Feel is committed to engaging in discussions that most men aren't having, but all men can benefit from. If you would like a one-on-one conversation to help you get clear on what you want in life and what's in your way of getting there, visit theandygrant.com slash talk and book a no-obligation, no-cost appointment. All links mentioned in each episode are in the show notes found on the blog at realmenfeel.org. Now let's get to it. Greetings, one and all, and welcome to another edition of Real Men Feel. This is your host, Andy Grant. Um, you know, and I, you probably do know if you listen to the show, it's not always easy being a man. Uh, there can be a lot of expectations, a lot of pressures on us, and many of them can be contradictory. Uh, men are told, or men are more likely to keep their concerns, their worries, their negative thoughts, their feelings to themselves. We can be told that we have to be stoic and, you know, get all your shit buttoned up together and keep a straight face and, you know, buck up, buddy, and all this kind of nonsense that does not serve us. I often say that silence kills and silence does kill men. And that's part of why I, uh, I open up about my story, my history with depression, suicide attempts. It's why this show exists. And it's why I'm always, um, honored, tickled, privileged to start to talk to, to allies and my guest today is definitely an ally in convincing men to live, right? So my guest today, very, ta- uh, very proud to talk to psychologist, speaker, entrepreneur, and suicide loss survivor, Dr. Sally Spencer-Thomas. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Andy. I'm thrilled to be here. It's been a long time coming. We've been, uh, we've been watching each other's work for a long time, and so it's great to finally connect and collaborate. Yeah, it's neat. Again, um, we had talked briefly before the show about being on the show and realized, yeah, we've known about each other and follow each other, but had not actually communicated directly. So um, yeah, this is a, again, a long time coming. And, you know, I normally don't do this and, but I want to, now you're here, you've been introduced, but I want to read your, some of your bio because it, it's, uh, it's powerful. Dr. Sally Spencer Thomas sees issues of suicide prevention and mental health promotion from a host of perspectives. Clinical psychologist, mental health advocate, faculty member, researcher, and suicide loss survivor. She has earned an international reputation as an entrepreneur and innovator in social change. Along the way, she's helped establish many large-scale, gap-filling mental health efforts, including mantherapy.org and the National Action Alliance for Suicide Prevention. She has held multiple leadership roles, with the International Association of Suicide Prevention, the American Association of Suicidology, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, United Suicide Survivors International, and the Carson J. Spencer Foundation. In 2016, she, you, (laughs) were invited to speak at the White House on men's mental health. I did not know that. So, I knew some of those, but wow, you, you, you do a lot. So I really just want to take a moment and, and thank and honor you for all the efforts that you, you are putting into uh, getting us sometimes foolish human beings to choose to stay alive. And when well, we- I'll just interject there for a second and just tell everybody to lower their expectations and have a huge disclaimer because, okay, I am not a man and I've never been a man and I have no idea what it's like to be a man. And when you're a woman talking on men's mental health, it's a little tricky. Uh, and I'm also, you know, a partner and a daughter and a sister 
and a friend to many men. And I'm the mother of three young adult men. So men's mental health matters greatly to me. Um, and, uh, and I care about it very deeply because, you know, after losing a brother to suicide, I don't want, I don't want anyone to die in isolation and despair, but knowing how many men are just white knuckling it out there and suffering all alone and thinking they're the only one. Like, I think there's some, some really effective work that we can do together. Beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. And I wanted, I, I was going to bring that up because I know that, yeah, you're, you're, you have, you, it, it's, it's. It's got to be a challenge that you're, you're you're spearheading so many things. You're out in front. You're talking about things, and then you 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 know you admit like, well, hold on. In case you didn't realize, I'm not a man, and you know. Um, so so do you? Is this all kind of your perception of you need to say that, or have you actually been put down and, and shamed in any way for for speaking about this? I you know what I really haven't, um, but I'm just mindful. Whenever you're talking on behalf of a group that's not you, you need to be mindful. Um, you know, my experience has been because, because of the, the, the evolution of the partnerships, I often get a warm handoff into any new community, just like you just did for me now. So that, that on the outset, there's a little bit of trust that's built in because somebody they trust introduces me. Um, so that has really helped over time. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I get off, you know, when we were traveling planes, I would get off the plane and I would go go stand on the stage and I would go look out at a sea of, you know, 200, 300, 400 construction workers, all men in the, you know, men in the middle of the years, mostly uh, with many of them with some kind of substance use issue, big, big guys. And I was like, how the hell did I get here? And like, how the hell is it that you're listening to me? I have no credibility in your world whatsoever. Um, but, it, you know, it, what I have found is that, you know, just like you were sharing at the beginning, everybody's got a story and they just need someone to provide some safe spaces to share that so that they can release the story inside of them mm-hmm. that has been, um, you know, pushed down for so long. So yeah, it, I, I guess it'd become that whisperer, that person who says it's okay. And not only is it okay, it's like super important. <laughs> yeah, right. It's more, it's more than okay. It's not kind of recommended. It's, it's necessary. You know, and if any any man is somehow bothered by seeing a woman at the forefront and speaking, just like, well, if more guys spoke up, you know, there would be a lot more guys speaking, and you wouldn't, you know, you wouldn't have to feel whatever weirdness you have triggered about it. But you know, we I've lots of female guests, lots of female listeners, and um, you know, this, this show, everything I do is for is for men and people that love them. And, you know, you, you named all of your human <laughs> relationships that make you mm-hmm. qualify, right? But, you know, you, you mentioned it a couple. So what did get you here? Yeah, well, um, you know, actually my, my interest in men's mental health predates my brother's death, honestly, if I'm thinking about it. So, uh, so I was one of those girls that Uh, was just always more comfortable around the boys when we were playing soccer in elementary school and the team started to split, you know, when the boys were starting to hit puberty, I wanted to stay on the boys team. Um, When, uh, when I got to middle school uh, and we had to split between who was taking home economics and who was taking industrial arts, I really didn't have an interest in industrial arts, but I didn't want to be branded as a home ec person. And today I really wish I took it because it would have helped me like darn my socks and know how to cook a meal, but that's okay. Um, And then when I got to college, I was part of a co-ed fraternity and I was like one of the only women that like wanted to run for office for whatever reason. Um, It's just been easier for me to understand and participate in men's social circles. Um, And then when I got to graduate school, uh, I was trying to figure out what I was going to do for my dissertation. 
and somebody handed me a data set for women um, who had been in, in a hospital for eating disorder. So it's always a great thing when you're a doctoral student to somebody give you a data set and say, make sense out of this because it shortcuts a bunch of work. But then I was like, I, I'm not as interested in that. And so I did my dissertation on comparing that data set to um, men who were uh, bodybuilding and using steroids to, to try to reach this impossible body image, just like the women were starving themselves or mm. binging and purging to reach an impossible body image. And I found, you know, some interesting things there. So this track of kind of being the whisperer um, had started long before. But then when, when my brother died by suicide in 2004, it all became very clear. Um, his journey um, into uh, his critical experience with a mental health condition started way before when he was 19. Um, he made some really bad decisions at college and got himself kicked out for a year. And my father was very concerned. And so, um, you know, took my brother into the psychiatrist's office. Now this was the late eighties. No one's really talking about these kinds of things at all. Um, and the psychiatrist gave him the label of bipolar condition. And my brother's like, whatever, I don't have it. I'll be fine. You know, let me show you. And uh, in that year, he had off from school. He found his gifts as a salesman, and he just knocked it out of the park. So he tried very hard for the rest of his adult life not to be different, not to be the other, not to be, not to have this label. Um, but what what the inner circle folks know is that he fought really hard against it. Like he had pretty crippling episodes of depression. Um, but he would often find his way into a therapist's office or get medication. So he was one of the men that actually reached out and got into things that could help him. It was just a, it was confusing. The medication uh, often created all kinds of consequences for him as well as, you know, mediated his mood state. He was an entrepreneur whose gifts all lied to being charismatic and, and driven and visionary. And so when that got tampered down, he didn't feel like himself. The weight gain didn't work for him. So, so all of that was kind of in the background underneath because he didn't really share it publicly because he was incredibly ashamed. He didn't have any, any other guys like in his circles. He was a very prominent business leader um, in the insurance industry, which, you know, that's not a place you kind of go out and disclose your mental health condition very often. Um, and he, he did really thrive and survive, you know, despite fighting all of the depression. But then in 2004, um, his mania just drove him completely off the rails and he never recovered. And one of our last conversations that we had uh, after he uh, came back, he was pretty estranged from us while he was very manic and he was doing really destructive things. Um, I, I think he came back to us just to say goodbye. Uh, he it was probably between Thanksgiving and December 7th and we just surrounded him with love. And I just remember, you know, having these conversations with him. We had all just read this book, The Unquiet Mind by Kay Redfield Jameson, who writes her own memoir about her experiences with living with bipolar. And I said, look, you know, here's this other really accomplished person like you. She's very public and she's gone through some things and she's figuring out a way to stay. She's figuring out a way to, to, to manage this pain and we're going to figure this out. And he said, but Sally, it's madness. And then four days later, he killed himself. So, you know, in my heart, I, I don't believe he gave up thinking he couldn't get to the other side of his pain. I think the pain was certainly a part of it and it was multi-layered, 
Um, he had all kinds of financial issues. He had some strains and some really important relationships. Like the pain was, he had gotten through pain like that before. You know, I think instead he lost hope that even if he got to the other side of that pain and solved those problems, that he wouldn't be able to get his life back again. So this was 2004. Again, not many men are really public about living through these kinds of experiences. And, you know, we had had conversations before where he's like, you know, um, I don't want to talk about this because I'm afraid I won't have the business relationships that I need to have to make my business run. I'm afraid my friends are going to think I'm strange. Um, and, you know, maybe back in that day, you know, and even today, sometimes the prejudice and discrimination is real for people. So that's kind of what fueled the fire in the belly. Like, how do we make this? This is just part of health. Everybody takes their turn here. And we're best when we support each other through it. Like, that's been always the, the mission. Yeah, I mean, your, your brother's story resonates strongly with me. Um, the first label I got was bipolar at age like 15 and perhaps a five-minute long appointment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was given to me with... what it. I shouldn't say given. It it landed. I received it in a way that had no hope in it. Mm. Just here's a trauma with the kid. Good luck. And uh, so I felt hopeless and helpless, which is the horrible recipe. And one thing that got me to start speaking out about my my attempts is that at that time in the eighties, I only heard anyone talk about suicide inside mental hospitals after I had made an attempt. Yep. Nobody was out. I had never heard of anyone saying, oh, I used to feel that bad. And now I don't. Right. I never like that's a thing that that can happen. Like nobody shared that. So. Yeah. In fact, someone close to me who had some experiences with suicidal intensity after going through a really hard time, you know, I said, I think we need to go just get this checked out because I'm not sure if there's a medical thing going on, if you're having some kind of aneurysm, like things are not normal right now. And and I want to make sure that you're not having a medical event that we need to address. And uh, he said, so you're going to go commit me. And I was like, Oh my gosh, like that language, like I'm going to commit you. No, I want to make sure you're not having a, you know, some kind of medical medical reaction to something. And it was just so striking to me um, how deep this, this, prejudicial language goes yeah no it, it yeah it raises up a lot of, a lot of fears of of being locked up and being put away and all and and again if uh you know the the worst aspects are probably just, those fears aren't something a guy shares to begin with so you don't even know how triggering a word is or something you suggest is to there like oh man you just like touch the the thing they're the most afraid of mm-hmm. um yeah so it's uh and again, that's why we have to talk, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and that they're, you know, the only, I, I believe the only way stigma is lessened is that everyone that's been affected by something opens up about it. And, you know, it, I said about a show a while ago, it's, it's like having a stigma against speeding tickets. Like what, why? It's pointless. Like everyone, like it's, it, having suicidal thoughts and certainly making an attempt is a big deal, but so many people have been there that it shouldn't be a stigmatizing big deal. Well, and I'll just say, Andy, there's lots of research to back up your, your theory there. So the, one of the main researchers on stigma found that um, educating about stigma doesn't do it. Like talking about stigma actually prunes the risk of increasing stigma because our brains are wired to remember the negative. So the more we talk about stigma, the more we reinforce stigma. Shaming people has the opposite effect, actually increases prejudicial things. It's being with people. He calls it the, the, the contact approach. It's being with people, listening to the stories 
figuring out very quickly that we have far more connection in our humanity than we have differences. And that's a pretty universal truth, no matter how different we think they are than people. As we head into this very divisive time in our country, just know this, we have far more in common than we have differences. Um, and when we spend time with the other um, and really radically listen, we're like, oh yeah, I go through that too. Or, oh yeah, I have that dream also. Um, and that's where we start to kind of take down all these divides. Yeah, yeah, cool. So. You're involved with lots of different organizations, been involved with lots of different research. So in the realm of suicide prevention, what's working well? Mm. <laughs> Good question. I think what's working well is that we're getting a little shaken up right now. So it is very clear in the United States that what we're doing isn't working. Our rates have continued to climb. Um, our post-hospitalization data is abysmal. Suicide rates go up uh, after forced hospitalization rather than go down. So we have all kinds of data that our traditional way of doing suicide prevention needs to change. Um, and luckily for us, we have a kind of a new generation of thinkers uh, that are emerging and calling it out. Um, and so this is what gives me hope that we can move away from a fear-based approach of suicide prevention, where our goal is to keep people safe and restrain them from taking their lives uh, and not really doing anything about the root causes or anything to really alleviate pain. Um, and that our only measure of best practice is things that were narrowly measured and implemented in a randomized control trial, right? Yes, that's a part of understanding truth, but there's also a lot more. So what I'm seeing that's working in suicide prevention is broadening our framework from this very narrow way of understanding it from a very medicalized perspective to understanding this as part of human condition to understanding it as part of social justice, to understanding it you know, on a much broader spirituality, much broader framework. And when we do that, then, then we're open up to many other types of interventions, many types of public health approaches, social justice approaches that um, are much more likely to uh, reach the people that we can't reach um, and, and actually make a difference. And when we look at other countries that are having a big impact, um, or other populations where we're seeing decline. Uh, it is usually this more out-of-the-box thinking than just medicalized treatment that is making, making a difference. It's changes in policy. Uh, it's changes in, um, in, in advocacy and human rights. It's around economy, uh, other types of things. So I am inspired right now by the creativity that's coming out uh, in, in how do we engage the arts in suicide prevention, in how do we help people make meaning out of their despairing times by getting engaged in advocacy and activism and social justice? Uh, how do we really build up, this is my favorite one, uh, how do we really build up our peer support structures in, in everyday life, in our, in our faith communities, in our workplaces, in you know, all of these spaces where it just becomes, this is what we do. Just like you said, no, no stigma around uh, seatbelts. This is just what we do. We take care of each other. We understand that our emotional well-being is part of our overall health. We can't have health without ha taking care of what happens on our emotional level and interpersonally. Um, and and we're, we know this and we value it. So that's the other piece. It's not just good to have it here. We got to have it in the soul where um, this becomes a priority in, again, how we allocate resources for our kids in schools, in our workplaces, and so forth, um, because 
the current way of doing it from a fear-based approach just drives people underground and drives everybody who's responding from like, ah, they're dangerous, you know, protect, protectors, mm -hmm. secure, secure. Um, and nobody wins when we do that. Now, I keep hearing anecdotally that in the midst of the pandemic that, you know, suicide rates are, are headed up. I, I, I wonder if being, you know, closer to the, the front lines of all of these issues, what specifically are you seeing is, has been the impact on mental health of the pandemic? Yeah, so, um, you know, we've been rolling out in stages as many large-scale disasters do, and some of the experiences have been pretty predictable. So um, SAMHSA, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, the feds, you know, have tracked people's mental health responses after things like 9-11 and Katrina and and fairly predictably, we kind of go through these ebbs and flows where um, we have like a lot of anxiety as we're anticipating the thing happening, whether that's a hurricane coming ashore or a very divisive election or, you know, something else like we can, we get really worked up in the, in the time period as we know, we see it's coming and we can't do anything about it. So that was certainly happening. If you think back in time, the level of anxiety that we had in the United States, at least from like beginning of February to you know, middle of March before it actually hit, we were weird. Like we were hoarding toilet paper. We were standing for hours in Costco, like doing weird stuff. And that was all about this uncertainty and building anxiety. And then when it hit, we also had spikes of anxiety. So that was also very clear, just like, what does this mean? How is it going to disrupt everything? But alongside of that, and this is why I want to be cautious about the increasing suicide rates prophecy, partly because when we start to predict that all of the, the suicide rates are going to skyrocket, we can actually run the risk of creating a cultural script or a self-fulfilling prophecy that then people live into. Hmm. Oh, this is going to be horrible. I might as well just kill myself, right? So we want to be cautious of that because another stage that happened, at least early on, is that when our anxiety was peaking, and I don't know if, if this happened for you, but I lost a whole week. I don't even know what happened. I couldn't work. I couldn't sleep. Um, I, we, we escaped up into the mountains for a period of time. Like it was really intense. And, um, I, uh, I also remember though, that was a, there's a strong sense of, of pulling together and heroism. We would lean our heads out of the windows every night at eight o'clock and howl in support of our essential workers and our first responders. And, um, we were making masks for one another and delivering food and it kind of felt good in the midst of all the anxiety that we could help each other through it. And then pretty much since end of May, beginning of June, it's been a free fall of crap, <laughs> disillusionment, discontent, conflict after conflict. You know, like we were, we were a very tender tinderbox when we, when George Floyd was murdered and, you know, we were primed for that, for the, uh, the social unrest and that has happened ever since. And then layer upon that, all the natural disasters we've experienced. So I think right now, what we're experiencing, uh, in addition to the anticipatory anxiety related to what's happening with our country um, and the election, I think it's just, people are tired. They're really tired. There's only so long you can just kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and try to get through another day where, you know, even if you don't believe so strongly that the virus is a thing, um, it's exhausting. It's exhausting to work from home. It's exhausting to be worried about your kids' development. It's exhausted to be worried about the economy. What's going to happen? Are we going to have jobs in the next quarter? Like it is exhausting. And so that's kind of what I'm seeing. This just 
fatigue, uh, soul exhaustion is what my, my colleague Sarah Gear says. We're just, we're tired, like real deep inside. And so this is why sleep doesn't really feel restful. And, you know, we can kind of numb out to stuff. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a troubling time. Um, and also, we have also lots of data that show even in extended periods of crisis, historically, um, sometimes humans do okay, even though it's a really hard time. Like historically, war has been a time where suicide rates have dropped. Now, not true in the last couple of conflicts, but historically that's been true. Um, right after 9-11, suicide rates dropped. You know? So we're also hoping that you know, if we can pull together, if we can learn through this and grow through this, I think many of us are reflecting on some of the silver linings that the pandemic has brought to us um, about simplifying life and figuring out what's important and all of those things. You know, there may be a chance that we can build some community resilience um, through this that will serve us well later. So yes, we're preparing for the worst. This is a perfect storm of of really bad things that are happening to us as a human global community. Um, and we're also, you know, we're hoping that the best of the human spirit eventually triumphs. We're still in the troughs right now, so it's hard to even imagine that. But, um, you know, the, the way humans have played this out in the past um, has shown that, you know, the long arc of some of these things can be really good. Yeah. So we're going to yeah, hope that, for that. <laughs> yeah. That's what I wanted to ask about. And, and, it's like, oh, things are rough. Oh, I bet, you know, the assumption, the self-appealing prophecy about it. Yeah. So I'm, I'm glad you clarified that because, you know, I've kind of been surprised at, at points how good I have felt. I'm like, well, the, the world's ending. Why don't I feel, you know, but it, it's almost like, you know, and I did think in times of war when, and, to me, part of it is everybody's in the same boat. Yeah. But you can't play the, no one feels like me. Like, yeah. actually, a lot of people do. Right? Yeah. And They're, chances are you're probably better off than a lot of other people mm. who, who you have, you know, don't have a home or, you know, yeah. are very ill or whatever, or lost a loved one or whatever. Yeah. yeah. There, there's such a shared experience happening now that, yeah, it, it is bringing people together. And there have been times when things have felt really good to me. And then I'll go through this, like, you know, maybe a week of just this like grieving and mourning and more of the social justice stuff. And like, Oh my Lord, this is not the country I thought it was. And we are not together. Like I thought we were to, to such a greater extent. So yeah, that's the disillusionment period that, mm -hmm. that you're talking of. Yeah. And, and the way they predict it's just going to ebb and flow. Yeah. And this one's really prolonged because we keep getting new crises on top of it, but mm. yeah. Yeah, exhaustion. So, so the antidote to soul exhaustion is soul care. So that's the other thing that I think we have an opportunity now, you know, perhaps, um, I know for me, most days before COVID, I'd be up at the crack of dawn, racing to the airport, flying to some place that I didn't even remember where I was going, sleeping in a hotel room, like getting up and doing the thing. Um, and today, like the first two hours of my day are all about soul care. I am, I'm, I go to a support group. I do kinds of meditation. I do exercise, like just to set myself up physically, mentally, and emotionally for what the day has to bring. And that was something I didn't have the luxury of doing when I'm racing to the airport. So there's like, try to figure out what are the things our soul needs to sustain this really long period of, of distress and despair that we're collectively experiencing. Mm. Yeah, that's one of the things I wanted to ask was, how do you take care of yourself working with such heavy subject matter? So how you take care of yourself has changed as, as everything's kind of gotten heavier, perhaps, in this, in yeah. this year. 
you know, it's been interesting. Like there've been a lot of long days because as you can imagine, um, I, my specialty is workplace suicide prevention. There's a lot of employers who are fairly panicked right now about the well-being of their workers and so forth. And so never before have I had so many things coming in the door. I know usually, uh, you know, in the, in the early days, I'd be like, come on, this is important. They'd be like, no, we don't have time. We don't have money, whatever. And now it's like, <sighs> um, but for me, like the way I sustain that my energy around this is because I feel like I have been prepared my whole life for this moment in many ways, you know, doing the work of workplace suicide prevention when nobody cared about it 10 years has put me in the position of being an expert in this area today when people are looking for the experts, I'm easy to find. So I'm grateful for that. I'm so grateful that I am prepared to serve uh, for so many people that are just desperate for steps and answers and resources and so forth. So that also helps like connecting, even though sometimes the work is heavy and sometimes it's, it's hard, you know, like always connecting to like this bigger, this bigger thing, this thing that's bigger than me and how many hours I'm putting in and you know, the, 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 all the drudgery that has to happen to make the thing, the thing uh, is just to connect to this bigger thing. And um, you know, and to bring people into your life uh, you know, like you and others that just like um, get it at a really deep level, what we're trying to accomplish here and, you know, help, we help one another bring out our best selves and also crash and fall when we need to and be <laughs> caught <laughs> like that all matters too. Like yeah. I was saying, I say, who's in your boat with you as we're like trying to ride through these rapids, like who's in your boat. Yeah. So you've mentioned lots of different aspects of suicide prevention that, that are in the midst of change can change. Um, uh, policies, laws, uh, human rights, advocacy, economics, peer support, what feels like top of mind to you of, of which of those, if anyone does feel the top of mind that needs the most support right now? Mm. Can I pick two? Sure. Okay. Um, one is again, going back to the broadening of the lens beyond this medicalized approach to figure out who else needs to be at the table and doing work. Um, for me, workplace prevention has been the piece we've been missing. Um, it is the most cross-cutting system we have. Not everybody who's experiencing suicidal intensity will make it to a healthcare system. It's certainly not a mental health care system. Not everybody's connected to education. Um, again, most of the, the, the deaths are happening in midlife. Um, not everybody's connected to a faith community. But pretty much everybody is working. They were just working or they have a family member that's working. So I've always thought that. It's just been a hard sell for a really long time. Um, but now, especially now, um, workplaces have got it. They understand how people's emotional well-being um, impacts their ability to do work, their retention at work, their all of that. They get it from a, like a return on investment bottom line perspective, which is often where you got to start. Um, and they're also super worried. So for me, onboarding workplaces and professional associations to be part of, of a solution is a game changer because it impacts so many people and for them to do it right from a perspective, not of fear, but of a perspective of care and empowerment and allocating the right types of resources and making them accessible and, and driving a culture of we look out for each other here. Cause that's, the right thing to do and because we are family like when i see workplaces get on board with all of that stuff i'm like boom because as soon as they get it and they're proud of it then all of their peers start to lean in which is another reason why it's like drinking from a fire hose right now um because they 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 experience a certain sense of 
morale and that pull together piece that we've been talking about that other companies who aren't doing that work are just struggling with because it just, there's a scarcity mentality and I don't want to be the squeaky wheel and I don't want to be identified as the poor worker or whatever it is that they're saying to themselves um, when they realize they can create a culture and a, and a workspace that um, helps people through their hard times, but also eliminate some of the drivers of despair that get people in a bad place to begin with. We also haven't had a really big conversation about what's the workplace doing to contribute to the problem. The workplace can be a cesspool of, you know, hazing and harassment and discrimination and prejudice and really toxic relationships, uh, really bad work design, you know, where people are just grinding it out for no sense of worth whatsoever. People's sleep's disrupted. Like we're doing some horrible things in our workplaces that are absolutely tipping points for suicidal despair, regardless if mental health issues are on the table or not. So holding workplaces accountable to clean up some of the toxicity and that those what we call the psychosocial hazards and not blame it all on, you know, a broken worker, but on, you know, not, nobody could thrive in this environment. Look at, look at what you're doing. Yeah. Um, does, does the, does the change in everyone not going to the physical workplace is, has that allowed cultures to adjust easier and to change? That's a really good question. So, you know, I, it's an, it's been an interesting test. Uh, so in some ways, obviously we're not together having the chat over the water cooler and learning what your kid's baseball team did over the weekend and having those connections that keep us more uh, on a personal level with friendship, which we know, we know when people have friendships at work, that that is a huge buffer. That is a main reason people stay at work. That's the main reason they love it to work, that, that love to go to work is because they got friends, they're deep bonds. Um, and we're hampered by that because we can, you know, many of us still working from home all these months later uh, are so far from one another. But I think the opposite thing is also happening where people are on heightened alert that everybody's struggling in one way or another. So there's this kind of an overcompensation, even though we can't get together and hug and go out for lunch, um, that we're, we're mindful in many ways about how we're doing. There seems to be a lot more checking in. There seems to be a lot more, um, you know, just... Are people getting what they need, whether that's a break, um, accommodations in their workday because they got toddlers running around? Uh, is it about you know access to resources or whatever? There just seems to be a lot more mindfulness about people's emotional needs than I've heard before. Uh, so yeah, this has been a huge test. Like I do not envy the families with small children who are trying to teach their children, run their jobs, like. That's got, and then there's just, there's just a lot of overarching concern. Like my kids are older. They've hit a bunch of developmental milestones. They, they're figuring stuff out. They're pretty self-reliant and so forth. But you know, when your kids are at these milestones, you know, they have to do these kinds of experiences to reach these developmental things in their life or the windows start to close. Like that's pretty heavy and that's pretty scary. So um, Yeah. I, I really feel for the for the families that are trying to make it work with small children at home. It's just got to be so hard. You, you mentioned the term "drivers of despair," which I had not heard. Which it, it I like and hate at the same time. <laughs> are most of the common drivers of despair hitting everybody right now? Mm. So despair is an interesting concept. Um, so there's hardship right? There's stress, there's things that are, are bumps in the road. 
um, you know, and we all go through them. Despair often feels like, you know, the fall is so great. The thing I had or the thing I dreamt of, whether that's a goal in life or a relationship or, or health or whatever, I have lost it. And I don't think I can get it back. Like that level of depletion of, um, you know, what, what that person was hoping for, that, that is, can be catastrophic for people. So it's not just stress or despair. Like we also know, like there's parts of the world that has a tremendous hardship. Like they don't have food. You know, they're, they're in a war zone all the time. Um, and yet they don't necessarily always have the levels of suicide that we have in our very, very privileged country. And it's because in some of these places, they just have a very strong sense of community. This is all they've known. That's the other thing. If it's all they've known, then there's no sense of uh, the fall is so great. Right. There's no, this, there's no loss if you've never right. had anything. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So for us, you know, it's kind of like this paradox of privilege that we have dreams and we have access to stuff that we think is so important uh, that when we, when we lose some of that, sometimes that's the, that's the crushing thing. So experiences like this can really wake us up. Like I, 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 what are the trends that's happening now? It's certainly happening in my house is people are purging all of their crap, you know, all the stuff that they've collected over the years out. It goes like, let's just simplify. We don't need this stuff. And, you know, I was also thinking like this, this year was supposed to be an amazing travel year for me. We celebrated our 25th anniversary. We're supposed to go to Costa Rica. Um, You know, what does a mom who travels all the time have? I got, I got frequent flyer miles. So I was going to take my kid to New York city for spring break, like all this stuff, all kinds of international conferences. And then all went away on a dime. And, you know, for a moment I was like, whoa, whoa, sad me. I'm like, oh, shut up. There's, this is not a problem. Um, But then we pivoted to hiking and backpacking where all you got, all you got is what's on your back, your food, your water, your sleep, your warmth, that's it. And when you are stripped down to that kind of simplicity, your heart and soul opens up to other kinds of things. And uh, that was really powerful for me uh, and, and super healing, you know, super healing. So this kind of forced into simplicity while the world is very chaotic um, is just an interesting human experiment. And, you know, we'll tell you in, two years from now how we did but uh it's kind of it's kind of cool in some ways yeah when this all started like i recommended to friends and listeners you know take this event like the world's giving us a time out like mm-hmm. go go within don't don't try to distract yourself and fill your time see what's there and deal mm-hmm. with the stuff you've been ignoring for a long time but um some of the things you're talking about it reminds, when, I, when i was a kid and and was you know depressed and suicidal and just thought life just sucked and i didn't want to be here I thought like, again, it was, I was in a life that was too privileged. If I had to fight to survive, I would, but everything's just easy. Oh, you know, what school do I go to? I didn't get a great, I didn't get an A on that test. Oh, well, you know, all these like things I could witness myself and see these things mean nothing. Why do they hit me so hard? Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so yeah. So being in a war zone, being at a different time, I thought if I was like living on the plains and had to fight for food every day, I would not be depressed. I'd be fighting for food every day. Right. I, um, I'd be occupied with things that mattered yeah. and not, not just contemplating things, you know? Um, well, and also I want to make the point too, that basic needs for survival are also important for suicide prevention. Like if you don't have a house, if you don't have a stable job, um, if you are in a domestic violence situation, like you need to be safe in order to start to live your best life. You need yeah. to have some sense of like 
food and and structure to really thrive but um yeah these all of these things contribute so so yeah so workplace suicide prevention for me gives me a lot of hope especially with the level of engagement right now and the boldness of some of our, our I don't, I don't just, what do we need to do? Like, let's get this going. This is super important. And, and not being afraid to call it suicide prevention. I think that was the yeah. other trend we saw yeah. early on. Workplaces were kind of dabbling like, oh, I don't know about suicide. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe we could have a wellness program. I'm like, all right, I'll take a baby step with you. But if you don't call the thing, the thing, yeah. then the people who are experiencing it feel invisible. Right. You know, when you can say it with like, this is just a part of everyday health. Then they're like, okay, well, then I could use some health around this, right? Yeah. yeah think, so, they, right. Being afraid to say it, it, not almost, I think it adds to the stigma. Right. Exactly. Here's a, here's a program to help the thing that we don't want to say out loud. That's like, right. Uh, yeah. Because we'll be afraid we'll upset people if we say it. Yeah. No, actually, you're upsetting the people who are living with it that they feel invisible. That's yeah. actually upsetting. Yeah. So that's one. I think the other thing for me that's been super inspiring um, and a big part of kind of that I see as the future ties along with peer support, but is really about this storytelling piece. Um, it's really about helping people craft a narrative that um, first of all, that they take ownership of their story. A lot of times the, the, the experience of the whole spectrum of suicide from thought to, you know, whatever attempt, death, whatever, is just so traumatic and so overwhelming to a lot of people. For some people, it's kind of a chronic buzz in the background, but for a lot of people, it's very confusing and, and overwhelming. Um, and when we can take ownership of our narrative by crafting our story, our story, the way we see it, not the way the doctor sees it or the way the parent sees it or the partner, but our story, that sense of building that cohesive and redemptive narrative is tremendously healing. Even if nobody ever shares it with another soul, just in a journal or to themselves or to their therapist or whoever, I think that's a large reason why therapy works is that, you know, we have a witness to our pain and we can start to make sense of what happened to us. Um, when people do choose to share and not everybody does, it's not right for some people. It's not right for them. It's not, it's not their time or whatever. There's lots of good reasons why people don't share, but when people do share, then I'm sure you've experienced this, right? The me too, like, Oh, I've had a similar experience. Then all of a sudden, Ooh, now you've got a community. You've got a community who understands at a deep level, the things you've experienced, you don't feel so alone. And you start to get strength from those relationships and together you can start to make meaning out of the things that have happened. And then the cool stuff, then you reach out and help the next person. And that kind of broadening the, the ripple effects of broadening that storytelling, eventually, eventually that changes culture. So for me, like empowering storytellers uh, and helping them figure out what their why is, why they if they do want to tell it publicly, what their end game is, what they're trying to change, and then helping them find the outlets that get them there, the place where they feel validated, um, and the places where they feel that they're making a difference. For me, that, that is that is the richest, coolest work. Uh, so I love it. I absolutely love it. So I know one of the ways that you're creating to allow people to express those stories and share more is, is a series of books. Yeah. Um, Guts, Grit, and the Grind. So t tell me a little bit more about that. Oh, yeah. So 2017, my dear friend Sarah Gear, the same one who introduced me to the idea of soul exhaustion, says, I got a crazy idea. Now I know. When Sarah Gear comes to me and says, I got a crazy idea, 
run. <laughs> because it's going to take up, you know, three to five years of my life now. She was spot on. She said, I, I have a crazy idea. Since we both worked a lot in male dominated communities, uh, we had construction and military and first responder and all kinds of things in her, largely in the first responder community in, in Massachusetts. Like we had been witness to the storytellers. Like we knew how powerful they were to be the first man in your, in your circle where it's unspoken to say, I have something important to say and watch that room turn like in a moment, like that is really powerful stuff. So we, we had these people in our lives who had done that for their communities. And we're like, wouldn't it be great if we just gathered them together and maybe created an anthology. And we thought maybe we'd get maybe, you know, eight to a dozen storytellers and you know, put a little hundred page booklet together. And wouldn't that be fun? Well, we put out a call for submissions uh, and very quickly the book of anthology stories ballooned to about a thousand pages. <laughs> and we were like, yeah, no one's going to read a thousand page book on men's mental health. That's just not going to happen. And then we also realized that, you know, we, we did some market research and the, the men that we would hope to engage with the book said, yeah, the men's stories are number one. That's most important. But we'd also like to hear you know, the science around this. What do we know? <laughs> what do we know about helping men and what helps people get through hard times? And could you give us some, you know, at least some beginning steps of things we could do to help ourselves and where the resources are? So Guts, Grit, and the Grind became a, a, a mental mechanics manual. So basically we use a lot of um, automobile repair uh, metaphors uh, to increase men's self-empowerment to take care of their own mental health. And we use stories, we use science, and we use strategy to get them in there. Now, we had to take this huge volume of the draft and split it up because it was too cumbersome. Um, so we made a, a series of four books. The first one is called uh, Just Basic Mechanics. It's kind of an overview of what to do on the prevention side when things start to emerge that are hard and when you're in crisis. Um, and then the other three books focus each on those areas. So we have a whole book just on kind of the upstream approaches about building protective factors and putting things in your life proactively so that when you do hit those hard times later, you've got a lot of stuff that's going to help you bounce back. Midstream, what are the things that you're going to do when things are small and emerging before they become catastrophic? And then the, the last book, which will probably come out in 2021, is, you know, how, how do you help yourself and others when when it's the full-blown crisis. What do, you, what do you need to do and how do you help people around you? So we're super excited. Our first book uh, just got on the bestsellers list for Amazon. Yay, Crackle Swap, um, last week. So that was really, really cool. Um, and yeah, we're just learning a lot. We're learning about um, how, to, how to do this, but also how to build this community. So the books are one thing. The community is a whole different thing. And um, these guys have gotten to know each other from being on panels together at conferences and doing podcasts together and, you know, all kinds of things. And, you know, they've built these relationships and friendships, uh, which is also super cool. 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 So it's like that, that book and a lot of resources to help guys discover they can do things proactively and start to take care of themselves and be more aware. Do you have any advice for someone that sees it? in a man in their life that, that sees someone struggling and do they dare bring it up? You know, what, 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 what can they do to, if, if they see someone that uh, needs help, what's the best way to try to offer help? Yeah. I, I, I have found like a, a certain type of starting a conversation tends to work pretty well, which is just, 
I've noticed, right? I'm not judging. I've just noticed that you don't seem like yourself lately. So not using any of the clinical words or the pejorative words, like you, you seem kind of crazy or you, you know, you seem clinically depressed. Like, no, you just yeah. don't seem like yourself lately. And whether that's they're withdrawing or, or they seem fairly really irritated or whatever. And then right out of the gate, right after that, you say, and I, and I just want to let you know, I really care about you. Um, for men, it also helps to know that they're not like the identified person who's falling apart. <laughs> um, so some kind of lived experience, like, I know, and I'm reaching out because I know you do the same for me. If, if I was going through a rough time, I'd, I really hope that you would tell me, like, you don't seem like yourself. So that's what I'm here for. And I really want, here's another really key thing. I really want to understand what it's like to be you. I really want to understand that. And then, so making the whole part of the conversation really about wonderment and curiosity and empathy and compassion. If you start that conversation off that way, you're far more likely to have a healthy conversation. And I also tell people, don't be afraid of silence. Silence is okay. We've been taught that it's not polite. It makes us anxious and it makes us feel like we're getting rejected. Mm -mm. They're just wondering if you're trustworthy. They're wondering how much they can open up to you. So by sitting in silence or keep showing up, then you start to earn that trust. So yeah, that's what I found in my experience so often there's nothing that someone else needs to do is just be there and, right. and, and sit in silence. Yeah. And just like, yep. I, if something's show going up. on, I hear I'm here. Yeah. Yep. Show Not, up and follow up. I think yeah. that's the other piece that, you know, this is really important that I'm glad we had coffee or whatever. I'm going to call you, you know, Friday, let's do this again. Hmm. So that just shows like I'm not a one and done. I'm not in and out. Like you matter to me. And again, just like you do for me, I'm going to, I'm going to walk with you through this. Yeah. yeah it's good. Yeah. Yeah. And then the other thing I would would suggest is for, you know, people who are, you know, new to the conversation of mental health, what we call like some of the double jeopardy guys who have a lot of risk factors, least likely to reach out. Um, You know, sometimes our program, Man Therapy, that you mentioned at the beginning, mantherapy.org, it's just a nice, gentle way to get people just in the privacy of their own phone or their own computer, just poking around on some of these topics around men's mental health that uses humor, which makes it an easier lift. Um, to engage with the, the conversation. There's a self-screening tool. We call it the 20-point head inspection, where if they're wondering, like, God, do I drink too much? You know, but just take the self-screening tool. You know, it's not definitive, but it'll give you a sense based on other people like you, where you fall into things, you know. And then once you've done that, then it gives you some other things to look at, some self-help tips, how to reach peer support, you know, professional services that we've vetted, and then crisis. Um, and it's sprinkled throughout the whole thing is humor. Mm-hmm. Yes. Can you bring in humor to these conversations? Yes, you can. And actually what that does is everybody relaxes into it a little bit easier. So mantherapy.org is another way to kind of introduce the conversation. Like, Oh, I heard this crazy thing on a podcast this morning. What do you think of this? Um, just kind of mm-hmm. helps move it along. Right. Cool. So is that one, is that a gap you saw of, of different ways to get to men and then, and using humor and not being afraid of that? So that, no, it was what the men told us. So before, uh, so, so man therapy is the digital uh, campaign that uh, we knew we were going to try to fill the gap because they're not reaching out on their own. We can meet them where they're at by providing this very simply accessible tool. And so we did, you know, two years of research and development around it where we asked guys like, what does it need to look like? What's the tone? Who's the messenger? You know, how do we find you? And they told us a whole bunch of stuff. And one of the main findings of that was if you make it funny, if you make it our kind of funny, we'll not only pay attention, the chances are good. We're going to pass it along to our friends and other people in our social circle. So 
uh, that was kind of a hard thing to hit. How do you make mental health funny? How do you make suicide prevention funny? But um, the geniuses at Cactus Marketing, which is the full service advertising agency in, in Colorado that helped create it, that was their talent. Like they could make things pushed just enough to the envelope where it was provocative. It got your attention without overstepping. And it, it has been an incredible journey watching that. We just finished a, a randomized control trial, you know, which is highfalutin science in the state of Michigan it took five years to show that yes, it has an impact. Um, but it does because it was a very novel approach. Um, it's not clinical. It's not, it's not pathologizing. It's just like, Hey, come on in take a look. We're all in here. You know, we've all gone through a thing or two and we've got some ideas of things that could help and uh, just helped a little gentle walk through it. Mm, awesome. Yeah. Well, Dr. Sally, I, I again, appreciate everything you've been doing, are doing, keep doing everything you shared here today. Uh, what's the best way for people to, to see what you're up to and, and to learn more? Well, thanks, Andy. So um, sallyspitzerthomas.com is my website. It's woefully out of date, but it's a place to connect with me. I'm on all the social media platforms, uh, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. Uh, Dr. Sally Speaks is Facebook. I'm probably most active on Facebook and, and Twitter. Um, and I also just want to give a, a shout out to that if you are in a workplace, uh, which most many of you are, and uh, have some leverage, I really would encourage your workplace to come over to WorkplaceSuicidePrevention.com to take the pledge and help make suicide prevention a health and safety priority where you work or in your professional association. Um, that's, a, that's a great step to take. And you know, go visit that website too, WorkplaceSuicidePrevention.com and just kind of see what's, what it takes. Uh, just sometimes a small action step here and there can make a huge difference. Yeah. And that's what I find time and time again, is that just do the smallest thing you can. It's just that, that littlest step and don't try to look, don't look at the big picture of life and death and just like, ah. how, how can I feel better right now? Right. How can I help someone choose to live one more day? If that's what that, if that's where they're at. So yeah. Um, little things mean a lot. Um, there's so many horrible cliches that are so, so damn true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Cool. Improve the moment is a good mantra. Mm, How awesome. do I improve yeah. this moment? And yep. sometimes it's just a little nudge. For me right now, it's like 80 degrees in here. I'm going to improve the moment by opening the window. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, uh, thanks again for listening. Thanks, Dr. Sally, for, for joining us. We'll have links to everything mentioned on in the show notes at realmenfeel.org. And as you keep feeling, do your best to feel good. And if you're not feeling good, even if you are feeling good, share it with somebody. Don't keep it to yourself right? That, that peer support to be clinical or to have a friend to be not clinical. Um, it can make all the difference in the world. So be willing to be there for someone else, be there for yourself. And we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you for listening to real men feel contact us at real men feel at gmail.com. Join the private real men feel Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash real men feel. Learn more about author, coach, and healer, Andy Grant, at theandygrant.com. If you enjoyed this episode, it would help us greatly if you gave a review wherever you are listening right now. It takes less than a minute and helps other people discover real men feel. Is your mattress making noises it never used to? Or is it sagging, causing you to... Then it's time to get a new one. Get the best sleep at the best value with a Nectar mattress. Prices start at just $499, and you get $399 in accessories thrown in, a 365-night home trial, and a forever warranty. 
Go to Nectrasleep.com.